wasn't a lightning strike. It was a, it was a boom of a, of a ray. It was something uh, like I would see in a James Bond movie. Lightning, I don't think. This blast up here, you know, we came from God knows where, investigating them. So it seems like it was, you know, it was more than lightning. We heard this terrific, loud bang, boom noise. Uh, the house shook. The dishes rattled in the cupboards. We ran to the, uh, the living room window and, and looked out in time to see an oval-shaped object that was moving very, very quickly, and it just seemed to leave a bit of a trail behind. It was quite loud, quite deafening. There was no wobbly movement or anything. No, it was just a, a trajectory that was heading toward, as we thought at the time, the ocean, but subsequently it did land on the island. The first of the Vela satellites were deployed in October of 1963, roughly a year after the famed Cuban Missile Crisis. Twelve satellites were launched in total, and the final Vela advanced design model wouldn't return from its mission until 1984. The Vela satellite's purpose was simple. During the tension of the Cold War, it monitored the Earth's surface, searching for any sign of nuclear detonations. The scientists of Los Alamos National Laboratory in New Mexico, the very site where the atomic bomb was invented, were responsible for monitoring the images Vela sent back and looking for light emissions that would suggest an enemy nation was ready to attack. In 1978, however, the team at Los Alamos received an alert that would cause panic across North America and spawn an investigation involving three different nations. The Vela satellites had captured a strange image in North America, a terrifyingly large light signature big enough to have been made by the detonation of a 10 megaton bomb. The problem? It originated in the backyard of a farmer in rural Canada, and no one knew why. We're back, and you're listening to Myths and Mysteries. A giant hairy creature, part ape, part man. Indians call him Sasquatch. There are busts of King Tut that also show an elongated skull. Taunting the police, chiding them, daring them to capture him. And finally, he invented a name for himself, Jack the Ripper. Analysis of the grand features suggests that this animal was indeed at least 40 feet long. He could have easily eaten up a man. I expect that we'll keep looking um, from now on until we find him or find out what happened. The event is known as the Bell Island Boom, named for the 13-mile strip of land where it occurred off the coast of Newfoundland and Labrador, Canada. But we'd be getting ahead of ourselves not to give this story some important context, eh? For that, we need to go back four months further and head to the U.S. The Bell Island event was actually one of the last and largest of a string of booms, or skyquakes, which began in Charleston, South Carolina in December of 1977. The booms that followed took place up nearly the entire eastern seaboard of the U.S., 
totaling 600 reports of mystery blasts from Florida to Bell Island. The blasts were described as coming from the sky, but with no certain starting point. They were both heard and felt, leaving many eyewitnesses with their insides rattled, believing bombs were being dropped. Adding to the confusion was the fact that many mystery booms were accompanied by unexplainable phenomena, such as abnormal lightning or balls of light or fire in the sky. The skyquakes, understandably, caused panic. While there seemed to be no pattern to when the blasts took place, they occurred with a disturbing consistency that had many citizens, already living through the anxiety of the Cold War, distressed. With reports piling up, the booms eventually became such a problem that they were brought to the attention of then-President Jimmy Carter. Carter assigned the American Department of Defense with identifying the cause of the blasts and putting a stop to the panic. The DOD then delegated the assignment to specialists from the Naval Research Board, which still raises the eyebrows of conspiracy theorists everywhere, as the NRB have been involved with experimental weapons development and testing in everything from lasers to underwater weapons. It took the Naval Research Board only three months to conclude their investigation and deliver their findings to the public. According to them, the booms which had plagued the country were caused by the supersonic airliner, the Concorde. The Concorde, one of the only supersonic aircraft to be used for commercial passenger flights, had a maximum speed of twice the speed of sound, and could cross the Atlantic in three hours. The NRB concluded the blasts were caused by the aircraft breaking the sound barrier. When the sound barrier was broken, the resultant boom reverberated off the atmosphere, creating the panic-inducing sound. Their solution? Simply reroute the Concorde, assuring that it would only break the sound barrier over non-populated areas such as the ocean. This simple explanation eased the minds of many in the anxious public, but some prominent experts didn't agree with the report. Dr. William Don, Chief of Atmospheric Sciences at Lamont Doherty Observatory, was one of the most outspoken critics of the NRB's findings. While the report claimed peculiar weather conditions were partially responsible for the booms, Don believed the weather conditions were not special at all. He additionally stated that the report did not address the strange balls of fire that many observed, and that further examination showed the Concorde was not even in the air during some blasts. Conversely, Don told a reporter that the blasts seemed to take days off on weekends and major American holidays, some of the most air traffic days of the year, leading him to believe that the American government could, in fact, be responsible. Despite many having questions about the veracity of the Naval Research Board's report, the skyquakes did largely disappear for about two weeks. Many have called the period leading up to the Bell Island boom the calm before the storm, because on April 2, 1978, the tiny community of Bell Island, Newfoundland was rocked by one of the largest electrical anomalies in Atlantic Canadian history. At around 11 a.m., a sky-splitting boom erupted that could be felt echoing over an expanse of 62 miles. The blast emitted more light energy than the atomic bomb that was dropped over Hiroshima, and experts concluded the event unleashed enough electricity to power Montreal for six hours.
Witnesses were terrified. Millie Beckford, whose farm was later determined to be the epicenter of the blast, told the Canadian Broadcasting Network, I thought it was the end of the world, so help me. I really did. Millie's husband, James, was inside the house at the time of the blast. He watched as the television exploded and a jet of blue flame shot from the electrical outlets. The breaker box was fried, projecting the fuses inside across the room at such speed that they had to be pried out of the adjacent wall, and Beckford ran outside in fright. Upon inspection of his property, he discovered the ruins of his barn, the chickens inside having all died, with blood exiting their eyes and mouths. A series of large holes were found in the yard, the mouth of the widest measuring four feet, along with a tunnel that Beckford compared to a rabbit hole. Following a foul smell, authorities discovered the power lines had received such a charge during the event that the insulation containing the wiring had melted and dripped to the ground. A few miles away, Ed Bennett corroborated reports of blue flame jetting out of the outlets up to 18 inches. Additionally, many of the machines and appliances at his residence were destroyed, and a grandfather clock, which was not plugged in or wound, chimed. While those at the fringe of the blast radius escaped some of the damage, the reports to the authorities were no less fantastic. Many described a metallic haze that could be tasted in the air, and a buzzing before or after the blast. Others saw bright lights and, uh, great balls of fire. Strange lights were again observed, including beams of light from the sky touching down on Bell Island. These beams were perfectly straight, traveling at a 45-degree angle to the ground, sometimes with a blue orb traveling downward through the beam. The Beckford's young son, Darren, claimed to see one of these orbs while riding his bicycle at the time of the blast. I just myself thought it was something happening to the world, he said, someone dropping bombs or something. The Bell Island boom lasted less than a minute, but the events of the days following would cement this island, with its population of 3,000, into the Conspiracy Theory Hall of Fame. In the aftermath of what Canadian Fire Inspector Jim Farrell compared to something out of a James Bond movie, government officials began arriving at Bell Island. Representatives from the American and Canadian Departments of Defense, as well as a ranking Russian general, arrived within days to analyze Ground Zero. Adding to the intrigue were two men in black, no really, they were dressed in black, who arrived from the Los Alamos National Laboratory. Both the security officials and men in black behave strangely, sometimes moving away from local authorities to whisper or pass notes, before returning, according to eyewitnesses. The two men from Los Alamos were later identified as John Warren, plasma physicist, and Robert Freeman, whose work includes weapons engineering. The two men were allegedly studying thermal nuclear energy confinement, a process that causes lightning to form into a ball and would assist in learning to store energy. Fire Inspector Jim Farrell and geologist John Mulpas, who both interacted with Warren and Freeman, reiterated that the men behaved both odd and reticent. Mulpas got no impression that either of the Los Alamos men acted like they were there to study a natural event, adding that they seemed to have expected something to happen and may have been surprised that the Bell Island event was not more severe. These statements can be found in a 1979 CBC documentary. It is worth noting, however, 
that, according to author Brian Dunning of the well-known Skeptoid podcast, Canadian reporter Rick Sarah disagrees. Sarah reportedly heard Warren and Freeman off-camera openly discussing what they were studying. By their own account, they had been tracking lightning superbolts since December of 1977. These dates correlate perfectly with the start of the original mystery booms in the United States. Which brings us to the question of what caused the blast at Bell Island. Lightning, specifically ball lightning, is exactly what the origin of the boom is most claimed to be. A rare and potentially harmful superbolt that wasn't believed to exist until the 1960s. At the conclusion of the Bell Island investigation, the public was told they had witnessed a very rare natural event. While the effects of lightning are consistent with some of the reported damage, many experts and conspiracy theorists refuse to accept this explanation. They indicate that ball lightning does not address all the claims made by eyewitnesses and could not be powerful enough by itself to cause the amount of damage that took place. The late Dr. Gordon MacDonald, world-renowned scientist and former president of the MITRE Corporation, completed a seven-month study on the mystery booms. Afterward, he determined that roughly two-thirds of the 600 events reported could be explained by scientific means like the Concorde. What, then, could have caused the other blasts heard up the coast of the United States? What happened above the small town of Bell Island, if not a natural event? Glad you asked. There are actually a few very compelling theories. Most, shockingly, revolve around the idea of secret government experimentation. One of the most popular theories is that the United States government was testing a long-range electromagnetic pulse weapon, or EMP, a phenomenon discovered by accident during atomic bomb testing. The concept for using an EMP is, essentially, directing a massive pulse of electromagnetic radiation that would overload any electronic it encountered, causing immediate and final destruction. EMP weapons seem like the stuff of James Bond movies and Call of Duty video games. The truth is that this is not new technology. Governments of the modern world have invested billions into discovering how to turn off the power of potential enemy nations, effectively putting them in the Dark Ages. Interestingly, one expert in a documentary we watched described an EMP as a lightning bolt on steroids. Along the same line, some believe the Bell Island boom could have been caused by the testing of a beam or particle weapon. The science dictating the use of these instruments is above our pay grade, but the process includes firing compressed particles of energy, bouncing them off the ionosphere, and directing them towards your target. These weapons could be used for shooting enemy missiles out of the sky and protecting the homeland, as well as knocking out long-range targets thousands of miles away. Again, these machines sound like props for a Terminator movie, but one documentary we watched discussed laser tanks as a scientific reality. German scientist Dr. Frederick Winterman published a research paper on the topic of pulsating electric beam in 1974, and said he was quickly approached by representatives from governments across the globe. Microwave devices that cause a burning sensation or emit painful sound waves are wielded by authorities to break up rioters. The HARP facility in Alaska sought to create an impenetrable energy shield that could protect an entire country. We truly are living in the future. One fascinating theory suggests 
that the Bell Island boom was a weather event, but one manufactured in a lab. Many Americans would be shocked to know that the military has been weaponizing the weather for decades. Projects Popeye, Intermediary, and Compatriot were all funded as research for weather manipulation. In fact, the U.S. is known to have used a method of weather manipulation in Cambodia, Laos, and northern Vietnam. The nations of the world found the technology so worrisome that a treaty was signed in 1977 which actually forbids the use of weather warfare in battle. Lastly, we have two of our more far-fetched theories. That Bell Island was either a failed attempt at mass governmental mind control or, say it with me, aliens. As always, we'll weigh in on all possibilities. What happened that day in a small Canadian mining town has been lost or forgotten by many. Those of us who believe there could be more to the story, and who find accounts involving mystery blasts, men in black, and laser weapons fascinating, find this tale electrifying. Thank you for joining us on this episode of Myths and Mysteries. My name is Zach, and I'm joined, as always, by a man whose Patronus is the duck-billed platypus, my brother, Spencer. <laughs> Spencer, how's it going? It's going really well. Uh, that's fantastic. And uh, what can I say? Perry is my spirit animal. So, <laughs> um, no, going great. So excited to be back and uh, got a little bit of the, the pregame jitters going into this one. It's been so long, it, it kind of felt like the first time. So great to be back and talking about strange and mysterious things again. Yeah, I, you know, I, I knew it had been a long time since we'd done an episode, and we've been very busy doing stuff in our personal lives, taking luxurious vacations, having children, etc., mm-hmm. etc., but I was I was kind of surprised when I opened up Skype to call you and get started that the last call we did had been in July. Early cool. July was the last time we did an episode, so this is more than overdue. Absolutely, and uh, like I said, great to be back, can't wait to put out more episodes, and I I didn't realize it had been that long either, so... Uh, it felt great, really, really great to be rattling off ideas to my wife about the crazy things that we talk about. All right, so back to the topic at hand, speaking of crazy things that we talk about, the Bell Island boom. One of the most interesting aspects of this story is the sudden appearance of some men in black from Los Alamos. So Spencer, I'm going to throw it to you. Since there were men in black, this has got to be aliens, right? <laughs> I, uh, you know... What else can we expect out of a story like this? When men in black are involved, people always have to have to think about aliens. And it's honestly not helped by the fact that one really interesting fact I discovered while studying uh, the men in black was that they actually were not sent or received by any specific country. So normally there are channels to be followed when investigations like this take place because they're international. And so you've got, you know, Americans going into Canada, joining a a, a joint operation to study these things. And normally there are channels that have to be followed, protocols, a sending group and a receiving group. And in this case, there is no evidence that that happened. So the visit of the men in black was not organized by any governmental channel technically. So who knows? They could have been from Area 51, right? Well, I mean, you would assume that for something like this, somebody has to sign a document authorizing and directing them to go there, right? It's 
It seems almost impossible that there's no record of them actually being sent there. Exactly. You know, I when I was doing the research and that phrase popped up and I heard that, my, my ears pricked up and I highlighted it and wrote it in all caps. Like, can you believe this was, you know, it's, it's an unofficial trip to study this crazy thing that happened at Bell Island. That's as suspicious as it comes. So I personally, to answer your question don't believe that it was aliens other than the fact that there were some you know crazy lights in the sky um there's not anything that really can be attributed to aliens but then again the strange circumstances that happen with aliens or in these cases can you ever really say for sure you know that it is or is not i don't know but <laughs> i was just thinking to myself that of all the episodes we've done aside from the george reeves murder and i don't know maybe the black dogs I think almost everything we've done, aliens was a possibility at one point or another. <laughs> so I guess there, it shouldn't be a surprise. Exactly. Until you can prove that it wasn't aliens, you have to be able to at least acknowledge the possibility, right? I guess so. Um, so if we're pretty sure it wasn't aliens, um, these guys from Los Alamos, obviously Los Alamos is where uh, the bomb was developed, um, mm-hmm. which leads into the next possibility that it was some sort of weapons test. Um I think that seems more likely than aliens. Uh, what do you think? I do. I agree. It's um, it's the most expansive part of the theories for sure. Because the idea that it was a weapons test or defense weapons test um, covers a whole bunch of different things. So you've got the idea that it was this crazy facility, the HARP facility in Alaska, which the documentary we watched said... They were literally working on being able to shoot beams of energy off the ionosphere to try to create a, a shield that it was essentially able to cover the country, or they literally said, or the world. So this is straight up Stephen King's book, uh, you know, what is it, The Globe, or what is it called, the Stephen King book? Under uh, the Dome? Under the Dome, there you go. This is straight up Under the Dome that is happening, this idea and prove to me that if you're an older person in the United States and you don't believe that your government is trying to build an impenetrable energy shield, then you don't know HARP. Oh my god. <laughs> Alright, we're done. Clearly we have not been gone long enough. If those uh, are the little jokes... insurance joke for all of our uh for all of our friends out there. Oh but my gosh. I apologize for nothing. The but... so the Go ahead. Well, I was going to say, like, what you were saying about the the general umbrella title of weapons test, because there's so many types of weapons, right? There's the dome thing. There's, I mean, even in the part that we read at the end of the scripted segment, particle beams, ion beams, laser tanks. Like, there's so many different weapons. It's hard to even narrow it down to one or two weapons that we could think that this could be a test of. Exactly. And in this story lasers, which are something that we are seeing used more and more um, in our world, are actually kind of taking a back burner. So, like, we're actually talking about energy beam weapons, particle weapons, um, EMPs, and these are the things that we're talking about when we're talking about weapons testing. And it's so crazy and futuristic to think about, but then you read about things um, like this particle beam paper that was written by this German scientist in 1974, and you're like, is it really the stuff of the future, or is it the stuff of the past? Yeah, to be honest, I kind of miss the days when we just use lasers to annoy cats, but... (laughs) Yes, and uh, I remember the days of you and me hanging out, you know, in our bedrooms upstairs, trying to see if we could, you know, 
bother neighbors or, you know, like make them follow lights or shine them on the grocery store across the street. And, uh, and now they're, you know, being used for so many different other crazy things. So we should probably talk about these individual things a little bit, what it could be, you know, the particle weapons and all those things. And I learned that interestingly, there was a, a significant document written called the RMA or the Revolution of Military Affairs years ago. And this was Dr. Nick Begich that was talking about this, where there's this explanation of how everything in war is going to be moving away from ordnance into things like lasers, beam weapons, microwaves. Um, and it's essentially equated to the discovery of gunpowder in the Dark Ages. And this was written years and years ago. So, I mean, do you think that it could potentially have been something like this, like a, a beam weapon or energy weapon being shot off the ionosphere and bounced around that ended up hitting Bell Island? I think it's as likely as anything because I just, to me, the idea of bouncing something off the ionosphere and just calculating and knowing exactly where it's going to go seems a little sketchy. You know, it seems like we could be like, all right, we're going to bounce it off the ionosphere and it's going to go over here. And it turns out that on our 1970s computer, we've miscalculated and instead we shot it at Bell Island and killed a bunch of chickens. You know, like, <laughs> that seems more likely to me that, you know, we're bouncing things off the ionosphere. At the beginning, That's it seems like there's a lot of potential for things to go wrong there. And what's interesting is that that is actually what some people think happened, that actually instead of a precise military or governmental operation that took place over or on Bell Island that it was actually a mistake. And one thing, I didn't want to take the time to write all of this out in the script because there was already so much detail. But one really interesting detail is that, especially for people who think that this might have been like an EMP device, mm -hmm. um, that could directly relate to Bell Island and how people think it was actually an accident because some people believe that whatever weapon that was being shot that was using energy or you know an EMP that was essentially looking for electronics or metal may have been attracted to Bell Island for a specific reason. And that is that Bell Island is actually one of the largest and most extensive uh, mining operations underground in the world. And to the point where uh, in the you know, mid-1900s, a German submarine literally fired missiles or torpedoes at Bell Island because it was kind of important. And so it's wild to think about the fact that Bell Island was eventually reduced to, you know, a town of 3,000 people, but it is originally a mining town and there is miles of copper piping and iron ore to be found underneath. So some people believe that actually while they were aiming specifically at something else, it made its way there because of the attraction to the iron ore and the copper piping. That is wild. I did not know about the submarine. That is, that's incredible. Um, I, one of the reasons that I tend to lean towards the weapons test theory is that um, in some of my reading, actually earlier today, I discovered that there was another very similar event to the Bell Island boom in Antarctica the following year. In 1979, um, the satellites picked up another massive light energy output like that of a large uh, bomb just like Bell Island, but it happened on an island, I believe an uninhabited island, off Antarctica. And it just has the feel to me of, like, 
whatever happened in Bell Island didn't go off the way they planned, killed a bunch of chickens, blew up a barn, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, and they were like, we better do this someplace where nobody's around. And so <laughs> they got their stuff together, fixed the mistake, and tried it again in Antarctica the next year. It it, it just kind of has that feel to me. It does. And number one, it makes sense, because what better place to test a weapon than the frozen tundra of Antarctica? And number two, there's this hilarious humanization of, you know, the federal governments in there where somebody in their, you know, dark room punching away on their keys with their, you know, green and black lettered computer accidentally shot something in Canada that they were not aiming at. You know what I mean? Can you imagine that whoops moment? Yeah, if... I, it just feels like Elmer Fudd and Foghorn Leghorn were behind <laughs> the computer and, and like, you know, this is straight out of a Bugs Bunny movie where, you know, we're going to fire this huge weapon and, oh, we blew up an island in Canada. Exactly, exactly. So we've gone through the weapons test. I personally, of the weapons test ideas, I kind of like the EMP. It seems to fit, especially that quote about them being a lightning bolt on steroids. Um, one of the other options for, for the theory is that it's not exactly a weapons test, but still is secret government plot sort of territory, is cloud seeding. Um, which originally, when we first heard this story, was something that I considered a strong possibility because... If you remember, there were stories of the metallic haze that in the air that could be tasted and tasted metallic. And, of course, yes. cloud seeding is generally done with silver iodide, which is dispersed into clouds to cause um, ice crystals to fall and become rain, etc., etc. Um, I say etc., etc., like I know tons about it and I'm just skipping over it. But really, I've just told you everything <laughs> I know about cloud seeding. But it seemed like that was a possibility. Oh, you know, we... You know, we, we exploded a bundle of silver iodide overhead in a cloud to try to cause rain, and it went wrong. Um, I think the major hole in that theory is that, according to many people, there weren't really any clouds that day to try and seed. So it it seems like maybe not the greatest theory. That's exactly right. And um, it is a fascinating theory. And again, this this story is one that has really caused me to be educated in a ton of new and different things like cloud seeding that you just mentioned. That will make and, you really fun at parties. Oh, yeah. You know, that's what everybody really wants to, to hear about when they've got a couple drinks in them is cloud seeding. That's, you know, that's the guy everybody's gathering up around. But I, I don't believe it could have been the cloud seeding because of what you just described. And that appears to be, based on all of our research, something really important. There have to be clouds already existing to be able to to do what you want to do to cause, you know, was it grease or, you know, acid rain or whatever effect you desire. And while it was shocking to discover that that technology already exists and had been used prior to this event, I don't think that it was set up quite right at Bell Island that day to be uh, cloud seeding or weather manipulation, even though the the haze is something that is kind of described when, when weather manipulation happens. Sort of circling back to the ball lightning argument, I think the lack of clouds is something I've heard most often as a strike against ball lightning is, well, there really wasn't any sort of weather in the area it was just a normal sort of day it was normal and sunny if you if you do the research you listen to the storytellers or the the videos 
you know, the Anchorman comes on a sunny day in April 2nd, 1978. So mm-hmm. you're right again, the the weather really wasn't conducive to ball lightning either. And I think that's what one of that's one of the most fascinating things about the Bell Island boom story is that no matter what theory or scientific cause you come up with, there's not an explanation that covers everything. Right. So you go with weather manipulation, but the weather wasn't right for that, but there was a haze, so there were elements of it. You go with ball lightning, and we'll talk more about it here in a second. I'll toss it back to you, but ball lightning, while some of the effects and stuff that happened, and we mentioned it in the script, some of those effects were very like lightning. You also have bad weather, or excuse me, it's supposed to take place in bad weather, and there wasn't any bad weather that day. And ball lightning the more that you study it, the more you realize that we still really don't know that much about it because you get differing reports on how long it's supposed to last and the conditions that are necessary and all of that. Yeah, there was one thing that I read in preparing for this episode that made me sort of question, well, maybe it could be ball lightning. There was a story uh, of an incident that happened in Bischoff Suerda, Germany, and I probably just ruined that name. I'm very sorry, but I, I... Sounding it out. but You bite off that pronunciation for sure. Yes, thank you. So, in April in April 1925, uh, there were many witnesses who saw a, a ball, supposedly a ball lightning, land, I guess, near a mailman. But here's the thing. It moves along a telephone wire, knocks over a guy who was using the telephone, tears through a pane of glass. But here's the thing. This ball of supposedly lightning in Germany in 1925 goes through 700 feet of telephone wire and melts the wire. Damages telephone poles, breaks an underground cable, etc. But that melted telephone wire sounds almost exactly like what happened on the Bickford Farm in the Bell Island story. It does. And originally when I heard the phrase ball lightning and did you know a quick you know, Wikipedia hit on that, you don't really get the feeling of all the things that it can do, but then you read more about it, like the story you just described. You watch YouTube videos where literally it seems like it's, you know, hovering for seemingly minutes. Like when you do research, it says, you know, it's it's normally a few seconds, which is longer than lightning because you think of lightning as in the blink of an eye. Mm -hmm. And so a few seconds seems like forever for lightning, but then you watch these videos and you hear these accounts like the one you just mentioned in the 1920s in Germany and you're like, how long did that take? And I think that was actually, you know, we, we laughed about the possibility of aliens, but earlier off off uh, off microphone, you mentioned how that almost sounds more alien-like than anything else that we've mentioned in the script, because that's just some super odd behavior for that ball lightning to have. Yeah, there were, were tales I was reading today of ball lightning where there were multiple balls of light that were sort of flitting around, almost playing tag with each other. And then, of course, as ball lightning does, they explode or whatever. But I was like, you know, that sounds like a lot of UFO reports. So uh, ball lightning is something, I don't know about you, but I'm certainly more interested to find out more about it. Definitely. And I think we'd be fair to say that while I'm not sure that the cause was ball lightning, that it does reportedly get, depending on who you ask, hundreds or thousands of times more powerful than traditional lightning. Um, So, you know, you have to pay attention to things like that, that it does last longer. And then eventually one source said explode like a cannonball. So you get that. And then obviously it is a large, you know, electrical charge to the point where in your 1925 story and 
there on Bell Island, power lines and electrical lines are being melted. But all of that being said, number one, that sounds a little bit like an EMP, so I could see the argument there. Mm -hmm. And then another thing you and I were talking about is, even though this ball lightning sounds like a remarkable event, would it really have been big enough and bright enough to cause more light shot into the atmosphere than the bombing at Hiroshima? And if that was the case, you know, wouldn't we know more about ball lightning or wouldn't that have happened more since then to where we might be able to kind of put our finger on what actually happened that day? Yeah, I agree. I I, I feel like if this is just an incident of really strong ball lightning, I mean, this was 1978, it's 41 years ago, I feel like we would have had more sense then where we could be, oh, this is just like Bell Lightning, and we know for sure this, or this is more like Bell Island, so we know for sure this was Ball Lightning, so that must have been. But we still haven't had another Bell Island, even to this day, that I know of. Exactly. And then one more thing that kind of raises my suspicions, and if you've been listening to our show from episode one, God bless you, because you know that I ramble about stuff, so I'm going to try <laughs> my best not to do that when I say that Ball lightning is supposed to be extremely rare, okay? And so there, you've got two separate events. The mystery booms up the coast of the United States, and then some in Nova Scotia, Canada, and the Bell Island boom. A lot of people said that the mystery booms were caused by the Concorde. A lot of people don't believe that that happened, including citing that balls of light or, you know, beams were seen at the time of mystery booms. So if you don't believe that it's the Concorde or that the Concorde did not cause all the mystery booms in the United, in the United States, then you probably believe that it was something similar to the Bell Island boom and that the fact they happened right next to each other in rapid succession within a couple of months is very suspicious. So here's my thought. If ball lightning is supposedly extremely rare to the point where it didn't even... It wasn't even recognized as existing until the 1960s. How rare is it really if it happened for like four or five straight months up the co up the coast of the United States all the way into Bell Island before culminating in this massive boom? Did I say that well? Does that make any sense? I think so. And I think really the one theory that we could turn to that we could use to explain all of the unexplainable events that really would wrap this up nicely, is aliens. <laughs> We've come full circle and dropped the, the proverbial bomb on you. We thought it's, it was aliens all along. It's always aliens. Thanks for waiting patiently on this episode of Myths and Mysteries. It's great to be back, and we appreciate all the longtime listeners and new subscribers who have reached out to check on us and discuss the show. We'll be bringing you the content you love as much and as often as we can. Please remember to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Google Play, and Player FM. It helps us, and it helps you to be the first to know when our next episode drops. We're building a pretty nice following on Facebook, and you can be a part of that by liking our page, Myths and Mysteries Podcast. We're always posting weird stuff and interacting with you guys over there. We're also working on our Twitter following, at Myths Podcast, so find us there too. You can find out more about the show at MythsAndMysteriesPod.com or email us anytime at MythsAndMysteriesPod at gmail.com. 
We love reading your thoughts, questions, or ideas for future episodes. If you have 60 seconds, please, please, please leave us a rating or review. This is the best and easiest way to help us, and we read every review in order to make our show better for you. Our list of topics is longer than ever, and we'll be back in your ear soon to discuss the lost colony of Roanoke. Until then, we'll see you next time. Thank you.